Afternoon to you all. Um, my name's Rich. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, it's great to have you with us. Um, I was quite pleased when Simon decided to do communion before uh, the sermon, because to be honest, I had no idea how I was going to go from the end of here into the communion. So, cheers, Simon. Si. <laughs> um, Better me out there, but I well, thank you, God. Um, he knows what he's doing. Um, okay, I'm going to pray, um, and then let's get cracking. Lord, we thank you uh, that you are here by your Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you that we can encounter you afresh this afternoon. Lord, we pray that you would come. Lord, we pray that you would come and meet with us. Lord, we pray that you would come and transform us, Lord, from one degree of glory to another. Lord, we thank you that you are so for us. Lord, we thank you that you delight to come and change us, Lord. And we just pray that you would be here. Lord, we pray that you would challenge us. Lord, where we need challenging, Lord, you would um, help us chop off bits. Lord, you would prune us, Lord, where it's necessary. Lord, you would build us up. You would strengthen us and encourage us, we pray, this afternoon. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're anything like me and you've been watching the uh, Olympics and Paralympics, you'll notice that um, none of the athletes actually celebrate until they finish the race. Um, it doesn't matter how confident they are, it doesn't matter how secure they are of their ability, none of them celebrate before the um, end of the race. I guess uh, the most anticipated race is the 100 metres, men 100 metres. Did anybody watch that? And there are a few of you. Okay. Um, you know, and it's kind of all the hype building up to this event. And even Usain Bolt, the fastest man on the planet, um, I think it's at nine, 9 seconds 62, you know, even he's not sure of a win. Um, so he's going in and, and kind of he's so focused. And all of them um, are so focused. And then kind of it's only for 10 seconds of running. And in that 10 seconds, you, you know, it's just a, a blind charge for the end. Um, but it all comes down to that finish line. Um, they're all, they're all uh, preparing themselves in the starting blocks and their goal is on the finish line. And kind of it basically all comes down to a moment at the end. Um, and effectively at that point, these guys go from being contenders, competitors with one another, um, to one of them being a champion. Um, and kind of it all builds up to this one point when they, when, uh, well, in this case, you're saying Bolt finished the line um, and was crowned the champion. Um, and today we're going to look at somebody else, somebody in the Bible who had an encounter and in an instant things changed. In an instant he wasn't who he was before. In an instant stuff happened. Um, and and uh, so we're going to look at that. Um, we're going to be looking at Paul today, um, or Saul as he was called back then, uh, in the book of Acts. Um, as a church we're working through a series of encounters um, with Jesus. So these are people that meet Jesus and then they're changed. Something happens, something uh, transforms inside them and effectively their world is turned upside down. Or, or maybe it's the right way up. Um, but they, anyway, they encounter Jesus and things are different um, from that result onwards. Um, and so we're going to be looking uh, in Acts uh, 7, 8 and 9. Um, two unusual things about this encounter. Um, first of all, the guy's name changes. Um, so he was Saul. He's Saul in this passage and most of the passages we're going to be reading. Um, but he's also, his name changes to Paul. Um, and a part of that is about identity, about finding a new identity in Christ. Um, and the second unusual fact is that it happens in the book of Acts. Um, most of the encounters, in fact I think all of the encounters that we've had um, in this series have been from the four Gospels. Um, the Gospels are the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. Um, so they're people that are watching on as Jesus encounters these different people and different things happen. Um, but this happens in Acts. So this happens a significant period of time after the eyewitness accounts. So in effect Jesus has been and gone if you like. We've done the four um, Gospels and now we're into the book of Acts. Um, 
So with that in mind, let's turn to um, Acts uh, 7, verse 58. Um, what we're going to do, we're going to read quite a lot of scripture. Um, so I'm just going to read it. The, the words should come up. There we go. The words will come up behind me as we're going along. Um, but what we will do is we will read the end of chapter 7. And we'll skip much of chapter 8, um, largely because it tells events that happened around at the time. And then we'll pick up again um, in chapter 9. Okay, so Acts 7, verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. This is a guy called Stephen who's preaching the gospel. He's telling people about Jesus. Okay? Um, And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and though his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, the king and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Okay, so there's quite a long text there. Um, and we can see right at the beginning of, uh, of chapter 7, verse 58, Saul appears on the scene. This is his first mention in scripture. Um, interestingly, it doesn't really tell us much about his background. Uh, he just seems to arrive uh, at this point. 
Uh, we don't really quite know why he's there or anything. Uh, we only know what he does in the process. Um, so he knows that he's involved that he's involved with the stoning, that the, the guys lay their garments before him seemingly to look after so they can go and um, chuck some stones at Stephen. Um, and, and kind of he's somewhere in the middle of this and we don't really quite know his, his intent, what are his motives. Um, but you see, from his actions, we can we can tell a little bit of his motives. In Matthew 15, uh, verse 18, Jesus said, "But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart." So what you say, Jesus is saying, comes from your heart. It's as if what you're doing, what you're professing, what you're claiming is coming from your heart. And in much the same way, what Saul is doing in terms of being at this stoning and offering approval of the execution is he's, is he's demonstrating what's in his heart. Um, now, because in this passage we don't really know much about uh, Saul, we don't really know much about uh, where he's come from, his background, um, I'll, I'll just want us to turn to Philippians uh, chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. Um, I think that might come up behind me as well. Um, and it says from verse 4, uh, this is Paul writing about himself. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And so here, Saul is offering us an insight um, into a little bit of his past. Um, and so let's look at his heart uh, that's going to lead to his actions uh, in this encounter, uh, well, just before he encounters Jesus. Um, so, first of all, what is somebody's heart? What is your heart? Well, your heart is your base desires. It's what motivates you, what drives you. It's what emanates from, if you like, your innermost part. Um, and it comes from your core. It comes from your heart. We often use that as an expression. Um, and what's in Paul's heart? Well, here, Saul, Saul reveals to us his life before he encountered Jesus. In verse 4, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, in a sense, what he's saying is, 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 is pride. At its heart, it's, it's pride. And verse 7, after he's encountered Jesus, he counted that as loss. He counted any confidence that he had in the flesh as loss. And if you like, pride is the pleasure you feel from, from, from desiring to be number one. Um, from putting yourself first, from, from putting yourself above others, and um, from seeking to elevate yourself um, above others. And that's what Paul does. He indicates how he was before Jesus. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Interesting, Paul here calls himself a Pharisee. What does that mean? We, we sometimes use it in, in modern day language um, to use somebody that's a bit of a hypocrite. Um, they might have double standards um, or they might just think of themselves as a bit aloof, um, kind of a bit above others. Um, but you see, for Saul, what it meant was um, the Pharisees were a group of Jews who focused primarily on their outward expression, um, so on their outward sort of piety, so what they did. And the whole thing was about what they did. So it was everything from the clothes you wore to how you washed, from what you ate to who you spoke to. They were known for being really strict. Um, they, they, they were really strict with a set of laws that were given by God to Moses. Um, these are effectively rules on how to cultivate a relationship with God. 
So in the Old Testament, um, God, gave, God gave rules and said, if you want to have a relationship with me, this is how you must do it. This is how it's got to be. Because, because before that, sin had entered the world through people turning to their own desires, people turning to their own choices and their own opinions. And so, for that reason, Jesus, in, in, in the Gospel of uh, Luke, called them whitewashed tombs. He said, outwardly, they look very impressive, because they do all the stuff. They tick all the boxes. They look great. But inwardly, they're full of death, like tombs are. They're full of death. And this outward expression was just a mask. It was just a mask uh, for what was really inside. Um, and so Saul's heart was full of pride. And he was constantly trying to be better than those around him and, and elevate himself and constantly comparing himself to make sure that he was top dog. Um, but this performance was just a mask. Um, and so let's look at what this led to. Um, his heart is demonstrated by his actions. And so let's look at them. In, in chapter 7, he's at Stephen's stoning. Um, given that there's an element of pride in his heart, um, it's likely that he's a young Pharisee at this point, and it's likely that he's there maybe to gain favour with some of the older Pharisees and um, to try and get a step up the ladder, as it were. Um, and it may just have been that Stephen was an easy option to do that. Stephen was effectively, uh, it, he was there, um, and it was something that Saul was just walking past and could have got quite easily involved with. Um, and then again in verse 9, in chapter 9, sorry, we see uh, verses 1 and 2. But Stool, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And I would suggest that, that actually maybe, although he was involved, I think it may well have been a little bit more sinister. What we read in these first two verses is Paul was breathing threats and murder. Um, and then later he goes and gets a letter that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's threatening to, to, to kill these guys and yet he wants a letter to arrest them. I wonder how many of those Christians would actually have made it back to Jerusalem. I wonder how many would actually have ended up like Stephen, being stoned somewhere along the way. And the outworking of, of, of Saul's pride is the persecution of the church. It's an expression to prove himself, how much more passionate he is, um, to show how much more ruthless he can be, to show how highly he regards the laws. Um, the, the early church was effectively uh, rising in power, and what that meant for the Pharisees was it was a threat to them, who were effectively uh, the, leading, the leading body of Jews at the time. And so it was, so it was a threat, and so this was an, a good opportunity to try and squash the Christians out as quickly as possible, and Saul evidently was the man for the job. And so he was ruthless in persecuting the church and killing Christians. And he's, getting, and he's, and he's he basically out to get them. So then, what happens in verse 3? Well now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were travelling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So he rose from the ground, and though his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So at this point he encounters Jesus. He's on the road, and the light shines around, and this voice from heaven says, Why are you persecuting me? 
What's, what are you doing? What's going on? Um, and after this encounter, uh, if we skip forward a few verses to verse 20, um, he, he effectively has this encounter um, where he's blinded on the road, he's healed by Ananias, he gets filled with the Spirit, then he gets baptised, and then verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. This guy was meant to be coming to Damascus to arrest the Christians and take them back to the high priest. But an encounter with Jesus on the road has changed all that. Think of the contrast. This guy came to persecute and silence the Christians and now he's proclaiming about Jesus and he can't stop. It's almost as if it's uncontrollable. Um, and I think, to be honest, my reaction would be something like those of the guys in Damascus. They're shocked. They're kind of second-guessing him. Is this guy for real? Like, what's going on here? And in verse 21, it says, And all who heard him were amazed, and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem with those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? You see, it's so out of character for Paul. It's so contrary to what they heard. Ananias, in, in, earlier on in the chapter, has even said, I've heard about this guy in Jerusalem. I've heard about what he's doing to the Christians in Jerusalem. Like, and you want me to go and talk to him? And God's like, yeah. Jesus is like, that's my man. That's the one I want. And it's so, it's so uh, out of character. Imagine for a minute... Um, Richard Dawkins, uh, he's a famous atheist, uh, for those that don't know, somebody who doesn't believe in God. Um, he's argued against Christianity uh, countless times. He's debated the existence of God. Um, he's, he's almost made it his personal mission to try and decry any faith-based system. Um, imagine then, in, an, in a debate, um, he's, he's, instead of arguing against Christianity, he actually begins to argue and reason for Jesus' deity. He begins to argue for Jesus' existence, his certainty, his mission, and, and publicly, before all of those listening, commits his life to the Lord. And suddenly this debating hall that he's in um, stop, stops becoming about a debate to discredit Christianity. And then suddenly it's a church, and he's the one preaching. And what's, what's happened here? Richard Dawkins is a scholar, and Paul, again, was a scholar. He was a Pharisee, he would have been very learned. But Paul's also a murderer. And just to think the scandal of somebody that has come, who's, who's come to murder people, and yet the whole thing's reversed. The whole thing's turned on its head. And Saul's actions have completely flipped 180 degrees. No longer is he, the, is he ruthless about keeping rules, but now he's ruthless about Jesus, telling everyone. And even here, uh, where it says, and when they were confused, um, and when it says that they were confused, he said he increased in all the more in strength. He just got louder. He just shout, shouted louder and just kept going. So instead of being ruthlessly persecuting and killing um, the Christians, he's ruthlessly proclaiming and proving who Jesus is and what he'd done. He's now not come to persecute, he's come to proclaim. What caused this rapid change? It says that he was with them for only a few days. What's caused this transformation? This, I mean, literally, his world has just been turned upside down. You know, if you like, he was on a fast-track scheme for, you know, Pharisee general, or whatever the top Pharisee is. You know, that, that's where he's going. And yet, you know, now he's completely deviated off the path. And God's intervened. He's had an encounter with Jesus, and everything's changed. And so let's have a look at his heart, because we know that out of the heart... He, he, he's going to act. And so we see him proclaiming and proving Jesus is the Christ. Um, so let's have a look at his heart. 
Well, deeper changes are taking place. It's not just that he's changed his behaviour. It's not just that he's decided to, on another career path. It's not that he's just changed tack, as it were. Um, no, there's something deeper at work. And this is demonstrated by his actions, but it's symptomatic of something much deeper. It's a heart change. And if what Jesus says is true, in Matthew 15, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, then his heart truly has been changed. His motivations are different. His desires are different. He lives for a new purpose. And at his centre, instead of this pride that was there before, now he's living for Jesus. Now he's proclaiming Jesus. Now he's, he's proving that Jesus was the Christ. And what, is that, what does that actually mean? That Jesus was the Christ? Well, Christ isn't his surname. It's not like Jesus Christ. Um, it, it, you could translate it as Jesus the Christ. Um, it's a title that was given. Christ means um, anointed one. In the Old Testament, uh, kings would be anointed with oil before they were given the throne. Um, and, and the oil was symbolic of having been um, drenched in, in the authority that God had given them to rule, to lead. Um, so why was Jesus the king? Well, he was the ultimate ruler. He was the ultimate one. So, so whereas we uh, couldn't keep those laws, whereas we couldn't keep those rules, Jesus kept every single one of them perfectly in his life. And at, at that point, um, he, then, he then settled a score that we couldn't settle. Because we'd failed to keep these rules, because we'd failed to, to hit these laws, there was consequences to that. And the Bible's clear that the consequences were death. The, the Bible's clear that we should have deserved death. Um, but Jesus, when he lived his perfect life and settled every one of those rules and dealt met every single one of them perfectly, lived the perfect life, he was then in a position to die in our place. You see, he didn't deserve to die. But when he did die, he died in our place. He died as our substitute. That's language we often use, that he died in our place, in our position. And so what Saul is saying in this passage is that Jesus is the anointed one. He's the king. He's the one. He's the one that lived the perfect life. He's the one that died the perfect death. And he's the one that conquered sin and death by rising again. And so now, at his core, there's no longer pride. He's no longer number one in his life. But he acknowledges Jesus in that place. And his heart is for Jesus. And now he's proclaiming and proving that Jesus was the Christ. So let's look, how does Jesus deal with our hearts? How does he deal with our hearts? How do we deal with Saul's heart? How does he deal with our hearts? Well, in Ezekiel, uh, a book in the Old Testament that's a, uh, a prophetic book, um, God says twice to his people, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And this describes what happens when somebody, just like Saul did, decides to put Jesus at the centre of their life. They were given a new heart. Not physically, but spiritually. A heart of stone that was impenetrable to that truth that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus was the Christ. Um, but now he's got a heart of flesh that beats with that very cry. That's exactly what he's proclaiming. A heart of stone is cold and hard to the things of God. The heart of flesh welcomes him as king into our lives. And here's the truth that's all found. 
Jesus is Lord and King, and as such, he is worthy of giving himself to. And we see that played out in his actions. He couldn't hold anything back. And so I wonder what's in your heart. I wonder what are you holding back from God? Because Paul didn't hold anything back. He went all guns basically. He knew what this would mean to turn his back on the Pharisees. It meant he could put himself in the position of Stephen and potentially be killed because of it. He knew what it meant because he carried out exactly the same punishment and yet he gave us all. And if you're not a believer today, um, then you have a very important decision to make whether this Jesus thing is true or not, whether you're going to believe it or not. You have to make that choice. Um, let me share a little bit of my story. Um, both of my parents are Christians. I was raised in a Christian family. Um, and I made a commitment to follow Jesus when I was young. Um, as I grew up uh, into a teenager, I, I just withheld certain areas of my life uh, from God. Uh, I still wanted to be in control. I still wanted to do uh, my own thing. Um, I was rebellious. I effectively broke that rule. I made myself God. I, made, I broke the first rule that was given to Moses. Um, I wanted to put myself first. Um, and so from, from throughout my teenage years I became a bit of a, a, a kind of um, what was the word uh, almost two people um, at, at school I would be one person with, with those, those mates and then at church I'd be another person um, with those kind of mates I was at a boarding school so, they, so lives were quite separate it was quite easy um, and to be honest I got quite good at playing the game um, and I would go to church um, say all the right stuff do all the right things um, but from looking at how, how these two worlds, if you like, uh, looked, it just had no impact uh, on my life. Um, I was still doing what I wanted to do. Um, I was still placing myself um, number one. And like Saul, if you like, I was a whitewashed tomb. Um, I was a modern-day Pharisee. Uh, I was pretending everything was fine. Um, I was pretending to Christian friends that, you know, I really believed the stuff. And I could, you know, because I was raised in a Christian family, I could talk it all through. You know, we could have a good discussion. You know, and to be honest, it would be like water off a duck's back. Made no difference to me. Um, and then, and then it wasn't until university until those two worlds began to collide. And all of a sudden, I had friends from from both camps, if you like in one place um, and, and at that point I had to make a decision um, I, I, had to, I had to decide what I was going to do if this, if this Jesus thing was true then it had to affect the way I was living um, and I can even remember a few um, a couple of verses that have just stuck with me from that time from Deuteronomy 5 um, and it says uh, and this is, this is God talking um, it says, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that there was such a heart as, as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. And at that point, I realized I knew what to say. I was just saying all the right stuff. I was doing the right things. Um, but actually, my heart was a mess. My heart was a mess. And if I continued... In, in this then it says um, that it might go well with them and their descendants forever what sort of legacy was I going to pass on to those around me to my friends to eventually my family um, and so, I, so, so at that point I can remember after a party one night just accepting and just saying look Jesus if, the, if, if this is true I'm gonna, I'm, I've got to give it my all I can't not 
It's a decision you make. You've got to decide, are you going to or not? And I decided that I was going to. Um, and, you know, that was seven years ago or so. You know, and it's just kind of, you just have to set yourself and just say, if this is true, then it affects everything. It changes everything. And it might mean that you lose friends. It might mean that you have to change job. It might mean moving house. It might mean changing church. It might, it might mean all, all list of things. But if that's what it leads to, if, that, if, that what it, if that's what it means to put Jesus number one, you've got to do it. Okay. So maybe, maybe like I did, you have to make a choice. Perhaps there's no other option. Perhaps you're a bit like a Pharisee, um, living a bit of a doubled life. And it looks no different um, whether you're with your friends or your non-Christian friends or Christian friends or whatever. Um, and maybe your heart is like fools. Maybe it's full of pride. It's all centred around you. It's all centred around your ambition, about your needs, about your wants. Um, and you've got to control everything. You've got to be the one that, that dictates what happens. Um, or maybe you're not even a believer here today. And you still have a hard heart towards God. And you've never, you've never accepted the gift of Jesus' death on the cross. The answer is the same for all three of those categories. Accept Jesus and surrender your life. You see, to accept Jesus isn't just to add him on, as if it's like something you can just pile on and, and everything and it'll be fine and it'll work itself out. Um, it's to give him control. It, it's to literally hand over the keys to your life, if you like. Say, so there you go. You dictate what happens now. I'm going to follow you. You lead. And wherever you go, I'm going to. Accepting Christ in the Bible is a matter of repentance. It's a matter of, saying, of not just saying you're sorry. It's a matter of turning away from your sin. So just as Paul did, where he was persecuting Christians, where he was killing them, where he was out to get them, arrest them, take them to the high priest, he turned away from that completely. I mean, he did 180. You can't get further from that. And he begins proclaiming and proving Jesus. And, and, then, you know, and, and effectively, that's what it is to accept Christ, to turn away from sin to turn away from that wrongdoing, to turn away from the rule-breaking um, that you were a part of and decide to be led by Jesus. And so how does Jesus then deal with our actions? If that's how he deals with a heart, in terms of replacing a heart of stone, giving us a heart of flesh, how does he then deal with our actions? The reality is he doesn't. That was the whole point of the Old Testament. That was the whole point of why he gave the rules to Moses. He said, do so, so the law says, do this, do that, act like this, say that, gosh this, do it like that, and things. And effectively, the, the Old Testament is a pattern of, of the Israelites trying to do that and failing. And every time, trying to do that and failing. And trying to do it, and, fa- and so on, and so on, and so on. And so ultimately, it's not about just saying words. It's not about what you do. It's not about um, any of that. It's all about who you are. It's all about your heart. You see, you can have a relationship with the rules, much like the Pharisees did. If you keep this list of rules um, and just tick them off one at a time, you can have a relationship with God, um, and that's fine. And so they were all about having this relationship that was confined and defined by these rules. But you could also have a relationship with Jesus that changes everything. A relationship with the rules changes actions, but not the heart. It'll tell you how to live. It'll tell you what to do. But a relationship with Jesus transforms your heart. It replaces that heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And out of that, you begin to live. You begin to act. 
you begin to you begin to live for him rather than trying to satisfy a list of expectations a list of rules and the problem is even for us as Christians or even for non-Christians it's easier to live by a set of rules it's, it's easier because you, you know exactly what you've got to do you, you know the pass mark you know da 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 okay well, fine do it dum, dum, dum. but it's superficial it's empty it doesn't deal with a hard heart of stone and in Luke 15 it says I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents so when we turn away from doing things our own way when we turn away and just as Saul did and we put our faith in Jesus then Jesus comes and he transforms our heart and he changes us and you can't change it but he can at this point I'd like to invite the band back up um, I'd love you to, to stand with me um, and I'd love to just have a couple of minutes silence um, and just as we reflect on the state of our hearts um, it might be that you're here um, and maybe you're not in a good shape um, but I just really I just really feel God wants to come um, and deal with with some people it may be that you've that you've never confessed something bef- to God before um, what confession is is speaking out the problem speaking out the issue um, and so I just want to take a couple of minutes just to be silent um, and, and, and just to search your heart it might be that you're like a Pharisee and perhaps you're, you're living a bit of a double life you're trying to, to, to do all the boxes you're trying to do, go to the right thing you're trying to be this person that really isn't you and you don't need to follow rules you need your heart transformed um, Lord Jesus I thank you that you are full of love Lord I thank you that you're full of grace and mercy and truth Lord I thank you Lord that you deal with our hearts Lord I thank you that you Lord you aren't content for us to just conform Lord to, to, to a system uh, to a pattern of rules Lord I thank you that you desire a relationship with us Lord you desire Lord to have hearts of flesh Lord that are malleable to your word Lord that are soft to your spirit Lord that are impressionable to your leadership Lord we just commit ourselves to you afresh Lord I just pray you would come Lord you would wash us clean Lord of the areas of our lives where we've withheld Lord parts of our heart Lord, where we've withheld certain parts. Lord, I pray you would just come, Lord, and you would deal with us tenderly. Lord, I pray you would deal with us in your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.